On Thursday, there were two losses of note. One, Brandon Bernard, a young man, African-American, who was executed by the state of Indiana, the ninth federal execution of 2020, and the first during a presidential lame duck period in over 130 years in the United States. Numerous efforts were made in the last hours of Brandon's life to stay an execution, but unfortunately to no avail. Rest in peace, Brandon Bernard. Brandon Bernard should still be with us. The other loss that was suffered was that of the British actor, Dame Barbara Windsor. She was literally a national treasure in the United Kingdom best known for her acting in the carry-on films, those bawdy films from the 60s and 70s. I remember her well in England. And she is and was an unforgettable presence. Vivacious, quick-witted, funny, real, and down-to-earth. Dame Barbara Windsor also appeared in the East Enders series, On the BBC, Barbara Windsor, Dame Barbara Windsor, passed away on Thursday at the age of 83. She will be sorely, sorely missed. Rest in peace, Dame Barbara Windsor. In Seattle, the day of reckoning was January 20th, when America's first patient tested positive for COVID-19. On that same day in Seoul, the first case in South Korea would also be confirmed. Korea moved quickly to contain the disease and save its economy using a variation on an American plan. But in the United States, politics got in the way of science allowing the virus to spread invisibly and fast. More than 200,000 people have died. In the first three months of the pandemic, 30 million people lost their jobs. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Friday, December the 11th, 2020. On this edition of The Politocrat, a conversation with the Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, Alex Gibney. I'll be talking to him about his film, Totally Under Control, a documentary about the coronavirus pandemic and Donald Trump's abject neglect and willful willful disregard of people in this country 
in acts that really amount to mass murder. My conversation with the Oscar-winning filmmaker, the documentarian Alex Gibney. Coming up next. At a moment of crisis, the world's most powerful nation didn't rise to the occasion. It descended into division and chaos. Why did the United States fail to reckon with a danger for which it should have been so well prepared? It's one person coming in from China. It will go away, just stay calm. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to close to zero. We have it totally under control. It's uh, going to be just fine. With me now is the Academy Award-winning documentary feature filmmaker, Alex Gibney. He has directed a number of movies over the years. One of my favorites, actually, is Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. He won the Academy Award for Taxi to the Dark Side and has produced and directed a lot of documentaries since, including, I think, at least three in 2020. One of those is Totally Under Control, which was co-directed by two others, Suzanne Hillinger and Ophelia Har- uh, Harutnian. And um, oh, thank you for the help there. I appreciate that, Alex. <laughs> With me now, as you could, might have guessed, is Alex Gibney. Thank you very much, Alex, for being here. Delighted, Omar. Good to be here. So, Alex, um, the documentary Totally Under Control is one of those films that um, grabbed me, horrified me, not because of anything you did to horrify us, but you just showed us what we're living through. And it's one of the definitive chronicles of, the, of this pandemic, if not the only feature film that's been made um, during it, um, that I know of, a documentary at least. I found out that this film was shot in 90 days or so, and you were doing this under the radar. How did you get that done? I, the challenges that must have been presented to you must have been quite overwhelming as well. Well, time was the biggest challenge. We, uh, we didn't start till May 1st, and we wanted to have it completed and ready to be released by the uh, um, second week of October because we wanted it to come out before the election. So that was... Uh, horrifically fast <laughs> for a feature length documentary that was a horrifically fast timeline and you know we started editors i think two or three weeks after we began uh pre-production and production all at the same time uh in order to be able to scan through archival footage and so forth and so on so it was really a breakneck schedule uh, three then four editors um three directors um, but, but luckily, I, I, I think we, we had a common sense of purpose. We were, we were driven by a mission. And we, and we knew two things going in that we were going to, uh, that we're going to be able to guide us. Number one, this was a film about the federal, pen, the federal response to the pandemic. And we were going to focus on the early days so that um, that would be something we could look back on. Not very far, but at some point, particularly as it got to this fall, it seemed like ancient history. Those days when things could have been different if different decisions had been made. The other thing that was that we were firm on was that we wanted to do a comparison with another country so that nobody could say, look, this is stuff that just happens. 
And um, we chose South Korea, which was a country which discovered its first COVID positive patient on the very same day that the United States did, which was January 20th. Uh, and they had a very different outcome, obviously smaller country, but still a significantly large population, 51 million people. And I think as of this moment, only 500 or so deaths um, to, to the COVID virus. So, so, so those things we knew, but still <laughs> there was a lot of work done. Absolutely. And you mentioned time uh, and you've anticipated something I was going to ask you next. Time is the central character in your documentary. I mean, there are several others. I mean, there's the virus itself, the scientists, the government officials who didn't do their job, and uh, and the public, the general public, and you have and and to some extent technology too, because you have a very important uh, narration in the first three minutes where you talk about about these things and somehow very you've 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 structured this film in a very molecular way, and I think your work is somewhat very emblematic of that. It's very molecular structured. You have very discreet, clear uh, anthems in your work. And I find it again here in Totally Under Control. And you use time, you use scientists, you use government officials and how all of that smashes together. And nature too. So uh, I just wanted to comment on that. Um, You wrote this. So is that how you were looking at it? I mean, because you wrote this script and you must have put that together at breakneck speed as well. I did, though. I mean, it was always in con- in 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 concert and collaboration with the um, <coughs> with the editing team and 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 with the other uh, directors, so that we had an idea of what sections would be like. And sometimes, and it, it, it would kind of depends. Sometimes the narration would come first, and editors would cut to it. Sometimes editors would work on the structure of a section, and 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 then imagine bridges where certain kinds of narration might go and they might put a sort of a you know temp text in the in the window of the of the image uh and then i would write write to it or sometimes we would rearrange the section so that i could write to it the the trick was trying to find the right style for the narration but all these things had to happen at the same time so sometimes narration writing is tricky in a documentary because uh, sometimes it, it, it can lead, sometimes it shouldn't lead, sometimes it should definitely follow. But also I think it should add something that the pictures don't give you or else why are you doing it? You're just you know saying what the pictures and the uh, and the sounds are are, are are saying. So 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 all those things went into you know a pretty fertile collaboration. But the molecular structure is an interesting idea, particularly for a film about a virus. And I do think that there were very consciously molecules or sections of the film that we focused on and that we would move from one to the other. And we would constantly move those pieces around to try to find the best structure for um, um, for, for telling the overall narrative. And that was tricky because there is, as you say, a timeline and we time is a character. Time is the enemy of of defeating the virus because the virus spreads very quickly if you don't eradicate it quickly you're in a lot of trouble um but but also in terms of the narrative structure we were playing both with a a kind of a a rough chronology but not so rough that it um um it undermined the kind of story we were telling And, and 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 getting that right when to violate the chronology and when not to those were some of the toughest decisions that we had to make in terms of getting the story right. And one of the trademarks in your work, and I remember years ago when I spoke to you for, I believe it was Casino Jack, um, 
and I know you also did Client 9. I, I forget which one it was. It might have been Casino Jack. And I had asked you about the music and the way you put music in that. I think I remember asking you about that. And you said the music in the films that you do act as a kind of uh, leavener, levity, a moment of levity to breathe from the intensities. I don't know if, if, if you remember that. It's a long time ago. But you have moments in this film like that where you have these, you have Convoy, you know, the, that whole song. And at these moments where information is being given to you, Catherine, Catherine, Kathleen Sebelius, the uh, former H, Health and Human Services Secretary, delivers some really heavy information, I thought, and then you put that moment, you design that moment where you have the music drop in. Um, I guess you had to do that with something as intense and as overwhelming as what we're all living through. Um, were there any concerns about how much of that music you'd put in? Um, the fact that we're living through this pandemic, um, whether or not you think you'd have an audience, would there be a big audience for your film? You know, that whole adage of people saying, well, I live, I'm living through it. I don't need to see it. You know, I know people who are of a certain age who will say, well, I live through that period of time. I don't need to go and see it. But I don't know that that's emblematic of a whole audience. But did you did you think about any of those types of things when you were making this? All of them. I mean, to take your last point first, you know, there was a, we were all concerned that, <clears throat> you know, we would make a film about a pandemic, which was intended to be shown during a pandemic and would people watch it but we gambled on the idea that um while people were still in the midst of a pandemic and we didn't know how bad it was still going to be uh, in october but we gambled that there would be an interest in figuring out how it started and how the decisions made at the beginning contributed to where we were in the moment and that that would be a way of looking back and maybe seeing stuff that we knew, we thought we knew, but didn't fully put all the pieces together in a way that, that was, I think, useful in the narrative. <clears throat> in terms of the music, you know, for different films, the music serves a different function. And in this film, it, it does operate as a, as a kind of useful tonic. And, and there are two songs about time in the film, I should say. One is Time is on my, Time's on my side, um, on the one hand, and then also time has come today by the chambers brothers at the end um but um and then there's a miles davis track i fall in love too easily which again that was a that's an interesting moment in the film because ophelia asked you know dr rito you know what changed for you in the course of the pandemic and he said i started listening to jazz i'd never listened to jazz before uh, and, and that was such a sweet moment. And there was a lot of pressure early on to eliminate that because it was really off topic or off theme. But we felt it was so important to invest um, our doctors with a sense of unexpected um, curiosity and joy and humanity um, that broke out of the kind of rigorous, you know, just the facts, ma'am, kind of, kind of narrative. There was a certain poetry to that that we all found very moving and, and that was important. And Convoy, it just seemed like, yeah, in the midst of something so deadly serious, you, you need a little bit of levity from time to time. Definitely, just a couple of other things, uh, Alex. Um, you talk about the doctors and you talked about the doctor you just mentioned. And I also think of Dr. Bright and some of the reactions you got from him. Um, there's a moment, maybe around 15, 20 minutes from the end of the movie, um, he has this incredible reaction, um, and he emotes, uh, he emotes 
But the, the look on his face is absolutely incredible. And it was very organic. I mean, you, I don't know how long you had questioned him for, for that segment, because you're obviously only using a snippet or a bit of that segment. Um, I don't know how long you talked to him for, but you got this reaction from him that, and I think you know the, the moment I'm talking about, and he kind of, you know, he, he emotes, but before that, there's this look of terror and horror on his face when he's talking about the chain of command and how he didn't like that chain of command. And there's something across his face that, I, I just don't know. It was her, her look of heart. Well, he was, I, I believe it was the section where he was talking about hydroxychloroquine and and the way that it was jammed down his throat so recklessly. And he is there trying to serve the public good, trying to uh, look out for, for, for the health and welfare of the public. And, um, and the administration had very calculating political aims that weren't based at all in science and, and it put him in a terrible position and it was anguish inducing for him. It, it was a, <clears throat> you know, that was a, it was a very powerful moment for us all to see. He got quite emotional a number of times during the interview. It was quite a long interview. It was, it was like four or five hours, I think. Uh, and, but Dr. Bright's voice was terribly important for us. I, I don't know if we had a film without him because he was somebody who was both a critic of administration, but somebody who was very much inside the administration at the beginning and became a whistleblower. So we could see the administration from the inside out and then from the outside in. The other key person was uh, Max Kennedy Jr., Robert F. Kennedy's um, grandson, who was able to give us a rather unique bit of insight into the corruption uh, and, and utter bankruptcy of the um, Jared Kushner task force. That was incredible. Um, I mean, I know we don't have very much time, but I did want to ask you about the introduction of the way you introduced your interview subjects, I loved how you did that. Um, it was as if they were being taken out of their habitats and brought into this different <laughs> world. And I loved how you did that. Can you talk a little bit about that, that theme that you used? Sure. Well, sure. And, 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 and part of it was also um, a theme of how do you film people during a pandemic? Because, you know, we had two approaches. One was a COVID cam where we would literally send the camera to the subject. We would hook up to their internet. They would open up this case. And, and because we were hooked up to the internet, Ben uh, Bloodwell, who was our DP, had control over the camera. He could manipulate the F-stop, the focus, and, and there, but there would be no human contact. So therefore, no possibility of contagion. The other way was to bring people into a habitat that we would create where we had, you know, a kind of a, a curtain um, protecting the subject from uh, the camera and the camera person, who was the only other person in the room. And they had to set the lights, they had to set the mic, um, and then they would see us through um, an eye direct, uh, 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 where we would project our image on a on a series of mirrors over the over the lens. Um, but you see them all come in, sit down. They're wearing masks. They unmask. It's a it's a moment of of kind of mutual discovery as the mask comes off, um, and, and it's both a commentary on 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 that kind of revelation as well as the <clears throat> the revelation of <laughs> of people trying to stay safe in the middle of a pandemic. Right, um, and and the last thing I want to ask you is about watching this film. Do you rewatch it, and have you watched it again since the presidential election? And if you have. Is there anything different about it that you come away from? Does it have a different effect on you? 
before and after the presidential good, election we've just had? It's a good question. I haven't watched it since the presidential election, though we are at work on a, on a short, a kind of, um, um, it'll come out, I believe, next week. that um, just updates the perspectives of four of the characters. Carolyn Chen, Rick Bright, Dr. Dr. Tyson Bell, and, um, um, oh my gosh, who's the other character? Oh, uh, Michael Shear, uh, the reporter from the uh, New York Times, who caught COVID from the president um, as, as part of that Rose Garden thing. So, um, so that'll give us an opportunity for some perspectives, but <laughs> I haven't sat down and watched the whole film again, though I obviously watched it many times before the election. I, I, you know, it, it was so much intended to be a, a piece of the moment. Um, I, I'd like to watch it again now and see uh, what it means now that we're on the other side of the moment that we intended it to, to focus on. It'd be interesting. But for the moment, we've been focusing on that update. And I'm sure, I, and I promise this is the last question, about the presidential election, do you plan to make a documentary about this coup attempt? Because it's ripe. I mean, I'm sure someone will do it if you don't, but it's ripe to have a film made about that as well, because that has to be documented in my view. It's a really interesting um, phenomenon, and I hope somebody makes a doc about it. I don't know that I will. I'm trying to take a, a break for all, from all things Trump, um, but... Uh, I, I did post something about it on Twitter just a, you know, a few minutes before we, we started talking. There was an interesting essay in the New York Times today by Tim Wu um, talking about how we were saved from uh, a coup, uh, not so much by uh, constitutional checks and balances, but by norms and the commitment of certain uh, groups of citizens to resist um, that kind of authoritarian corruption uh, of an election. Um, whether it be people in the military or election officials, notably, you know, you know, two Republicans in Georgia, the Secretary of State and the, and, and the governor, who refused to um, uh, crumble under pressure from, from, from Trump. But that also gives you a sense, and I don't think any of us really realized just how rickety are some of the systems um, in our election procedures that would allow a more ruthless character. There may not be somebody more ruthless than Trump, but there may come along somebody smarter than Trump who's just as ruthless and may figure out how to use those rickety structures to their advantage. And I would hope <laughs> that we might uh, take statutory attempts to fix some of them. This is time for a little work on the scaffolding. Absolutely, Alex. Thank you so very much for your time. I really do appreciate you being here. It's Alex Gibney, the Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's, doc he's documented so many important things about government, about infrastructure, about finance, corruption, and the people get, that get hurt by it and the institutions that get damaged. It's been an honor to speak to you, Alex. To totally under control. It's available at uh, Apple and iTunes and a number of other platforms. He has... Agents of Chaos as well available on, on numerous platforms about the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election and numerous other films. My goodness me, Alex, it's been really a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for being here on The Political Our Great pleasure speaking to you and thanks for being so persistent. Thank you, sir.
Don't forget that you can now listen to the Politocrat podcast on Audible at audible.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe now. And thank you for your support. Special thanks again to Alex Gibney for spending some time here on the Politocrat podcast. It's, it's really, it was really great to speak to him about Totally Under Control, a uh, really important film that you really have to see. It is available, as I said, on Apple, iTunes, and numerous other platforms. As I said, Alex has directed a number of films this year. He's been very busy, um, films that have come out this year at least, and one of them is Agents of Chaos, a two-part film that was on HBO and is available, I believe, on HBO Max as well. Totally Under Control, a really good film. I think it's one of the best films I've seen in 2020. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.